Good evening. Yes. For sure. It's really good to be here. Glad to see everybody here tonight. And glad to have the kids joining us for the singing. It's really a, a pleasure to have them here and, and joining us for that time. And it's good for them, too. And since we have this program for them, it's really good that we have this program so that adults aren't roaming the streets with nothing to do, too, while they're waiting for their kids, right? This is really good. Uh, Colossians, in your Bibles. We will continue there. Um, as we study through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And Brandon, last week Brandon came and covered uh, for me while um, I was out of town. And um, you guys did a study on one of the names of God, El Elyon, uh, if I remember right, God Most High. Um, so I'm grateful that he was able to come and, and fill in for me. And in our Colossians study, we had been looking at Paul's clear writings about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. And remembering that Paul is having to write this letter to shore up the church at Colossae in the face of heresy, right? the face of false teaching that was coming in, specifically heresy related to the person and work of Jesus. And so Paul had to write very clearly about that. And in regard to that work, the work by which they, those people that Paul wrote to, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, um, they had been delivered from what he said was the, the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Um, and so he cares for these people, though he hasn't met them. And Paul has left no doubt about who Jesus is, what he has done for repentant sinners, such as these folks at Colossae, and for you and I today as well. Um, Paul didn't start that church. He, he hadn't visited that church to this point. He, he didn't know these people personally. So he has to give his credentials as an apostle of Christ. It's not that they, didn't, they probably hadn't heard of Paul or didn't know who Paul was, but they didn't know him personally. And he is reminding them of his authority to speak on the subject as opposed to those who have been stirring up trouble in the church, uh, stirring up trouble with ungodly teachings about Christ, they had no authority from God or the Scriptures to teach what they were teaching. But Paul's not yet done talking about his own ministry and how it relates to the church there, or how he became a minister of the church, or what his ministry has revealed to the church. And that's what we'll be looking at over the next, uh, next couple of weeks. Um, Paul's particular ministry. Uh, for instance, why, why is Paul an apostle in the first place? Why, why is Paul an apostle? Okay, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He was called, he simply, more simply put, God made him so. God made him an apostle. And now in the final verses of this first chapter and partway into chapter 2, Paul talks about his own life and ministry uh, just a bit, but not so that people can focus on him, not so people will think more highly of him. What he's really doing is setting up a sort of comparison, right? Without actually asking them to, he's creating a comparison between his life and teaching and the life and teaching 
of the false teachers, those who were teaching what was, what was wrong about Jesus. Um, these false teachers cannot claim apostleship. They cannot claim devotion to Christ. They cannot show from their own lives the transforming power of the gospel. They cannot show their own willingness to suffer for the truth. They cannot reveal truth because they're not writing Holy Spirit-inspired words. They don't have the gospel. So Paul's setting himself up here as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is an apostle by the will of God, and he's pointing that out. He's giving his credentials so that they can, they can see the difference. They can compare this man, Paul, his life, his ministry, his teachings as, uh, as compared to those of the false teachers. And as Paul talks about his own life here, don't think he's bragging. Okay? We, there's several places in Scripture where Paul talks about his own life and how God has used him. And it's never a point of bragging on his part. And remember his stated desire for these people is that they would, as we saw earlier in chapter 1, they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. That was in verse 10. So for the rest of this chapter, we're going to break it up into three sections. Um, Verses 24 and 25 is a, a section we'll be looking at dealing with Paul's suffering for the church. Verses 26 and 27 will be Paul's mystery message. And verses 28 and 29 will be Paul's goal for maturity. And this is how we'll finish out um, chapter 1 of Colossians. We won't get through all of that tonight. Surprise. Um, but um, we'll, we'll, we'll get through the first section for sure. So let's read out, but let's read out that whole section. Colossians 1 verses 24 through 29 to finish out the chapter, and then we'll come back and, look, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started in, in verses 24 and 25. So starting in verse 24 of Colossians 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for this night. We thank you for another opportunity to come together as your people, to gather around your word, to hear what um, you have said through, um, through the authors of Scripture that you inspired, Lord, to write your words. And tonight, as we hear these words about the life of Paul and the the ministry he had on behalf of the church. I pray that we would be encouraged by this, that we will learn from this passage, Lord, um, that you would teach us what the truth is through your Holy Spirit. We thank you for um, your love for us. We thank you that you have poured out your love on us through your Son. Uh, And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. So verses 24 and 25 in Colossians 1 is, will, will be our focus for tonight. 
So I want to read those again real quick. He says here, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Okay, there's kind of a lot there. These, these verses are, are focused on Paul's suffering, okay, how he views his suffering, why he's suffering, and what his suffering accomplishes uh, according to the will of God. And on a side note, as we will see in a bit, verse 24 is one of those passages of Scripture that is used um, by, by the Roman Catholic Church to support their false doctrine of purgatory and their false gospel of salvation by works. Okay, this is one of those verses that is, that is misused. Um, and we'll, we'll look at that more in a minute. But a question, if, if all you knew about Paul was that he was a follower of Christ and was in prison for preaching Christ, and you heard that he said, now I rejoice in my sufferings for the church of Jesus Christ, what could you gather from that regarding Paul's character and mindset? If that's all you knew about him and you heard him say that, what do you gather about his character and his mindset? What do you guys think? Okay, he's, he's willing. Okay, yeah, he's willing to suffer for the church, right? What else? What can we learn about Paul from that statement? He's devoted, right? Devoted to God. Anything else? What was that? <clears throat> a little wacky. Hey, you know, true. I mean, somebody hears this. You don't usually hear that, do you? You don't usually hear someone rejoicing in suffering. That here, this committed, loyal believer, follower of Christ, dedicated, willing to suffer, he talks about joy in his suffering. So, when was the last time you considered any type of suffering on your part as a joy? Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you, have you ever thought of suffering in your life as something to be joyful about? Okay, childbirth, right? Because why is that? Because, yes, it's painful. It's, there's suffering involved in that, but what are you thinking about? The new life, right? What's to come? You're looking, you're looking beyond that. Um, and that's why the Scripture tells us, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, right? It wasn't that he's like, yeah, I get to go experience pain. But, but what the outcome of the cross was is what he was looking at, right? So, but this is hard. It's right. You know, you could think people are a little wacky. You know, sometimes Christians are seen as a little wacky for their attitudes about suffering. Well, we should have a different attitude about suffering. Um, and that's what Paul's talking about here. He definitely has a different attitude about suffering. And when I say different, I mean different from the world, Right? It's, it shouldn't be different for us as Christians to look at Paul's attitude about suffering. We shouldn't go, that's weird. We should say, wow, that's really a good attitude. I, need to, I wish I was like that. I, and I'm going to pray and ask God to help me be more like that. That's how Christians would view that. That was the mindset that Paul had about suffering, joyfulness. And in his letter to the, the Philippians, uh, the Philippian church, 
which is also one of the letters he wrote from prison, Paul mentioned joyfulness in, in all four of the chapters in that book. He makes it clear that the life of Christians should be marked by a joyful disposition, right? He goes so far as to say that even if he's killed for the faith, there should be rejoicing. He tells the church there that they should rejoice with him if that was the case. His attitude about suffering and joy reveals something about the type of person that Paul is, and it reveals something about his understanding of the Christian life as well. This isn't just about the person Paul but why is he the way he is? It's because he understands what is to be expected in the Christian life. For one thing about him, there seems to be no, when you look at his writings and, and even some of the accounts he gives in Scripture of all his suffering, there seems to be no circumstantial limits to his joy. Like He goes through some, some rough things, and some of them more than one time, and yet he remains joyful. And his statement here in in verse 24, reflects the biblical truth that he made clear in Philippians. Um, writing to the whole church at, at Philippi, right, not just to one person, writing to the whole church, to all the Christians there, he spelled out what God has determined to be a part of the Christian life in Philippians 1.29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, which is where we stop sometimes, right, but also suffer for His sake. That has been granted to you as a Christian. Paul understood this. It's, it's not a popular message. You know, when was the last time someone tried to get you to, to sign up for a club or join, join some group, and one of the selling points was, we get to suffer for this cause. That's not usually what people lead with, right? They usually don't even bring that up. And, and that's not to reduce Christianity to the level of some club, right? But you get my, you get my point. This is different. There's something different about Christians. Let's talk about this for a moment. What other scriptures can you think of that speak of the suffering of Christians as normal or to be expected and that that we should rejoice in it? Can you think of any other scriptures off the top of your head that talk about that? James. James 1, right? Uh, What does he say there? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. Consider it joy to go through that. Any others you can think of? Remember the, the um, disciples were brought in and told not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore, and they were beaten and sent out. What did they do? They went out rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. It's, it's different. First Peter 4 Uh, 12 and 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Don't think it's strange, Christian. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Right? This is to be understood this way. Uh, Flip over with me to 1 Peter 2. In your Bibles... 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Keep your finger in Colossians there. 1 Peter 2, 19 through 21. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. Okay? To this you were called. It is part of the life of believers. And Paul says that his suffering is for their sake, right? for the sake of the church. He's, he's not in prison for violence uh, or theft or because he's a jerk. Right? He's, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. He's in prison because of the message, because of Christ. Why is he preaching the gospel? So people will get saved and be added to the church. He is, he's going about with this message. And he specifies that the suffering that he's enduring is in, in my flesh, he says. And we know that Paul endured many physical beatings and, and violence for the gospel. Um, and now he's in prison, still suffering physically or in his flesh, as he said, for the church. And that doesn't mean that he only suffers physically, um, but, but that is what he focuses on here. But why do, you think, why do you think Paul can rejoice? What frees Paul up to rejoice even though he's suffering as a captive? Okay, knowing that other people are finding Christ. The gospel is going out. People are coming to Christ because of his suffering. Why else? Why can he rejoice? Right, okay. Right, so the idea there too is like we talked about with with childbirth or with what Christ was looking at on the cross, looking ahead to what it produced, right? And so in that sense, yeah, Paul is, he knows about eternity, that he has eternity with God to look forward to. He, he knows God, that God is sovereign over all things, including his suffering. He knows that no plans of God will ever be stopped, right? He knows the, that victory has already been won by Christ. And we, when, when a Christian has knowledge of these things and can trust God, we can trust God because he's sovereign, that, that frees us then from fear of what may happen. Um, and that's what's going on with him. He, he, can be, he can rejoice, simply put, he can rejoice because he knows the truth, right? He says, in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. And here's where we get to the this problematic section of this passage. What can that scripture sound like it is saying? In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. What can that sound like it's saying? Okay, could be, could be boasting. Something bigger though. Works, right. It can sound like it's saying what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, right? Filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, right? That can, this is where we can have some trouble, right? Versus, verse 24 is what can seem to be a confusing element to it that makes it sound like there's something that we have to add to our salvation because Christ didn't accomplish it. Right, we can understand why someone might think that, right? You, if you just read that and you don't 
study it, you don't have any other understanding around that, you can be left with that conclusion. Or, or some that have created certain doctrines can use that in, to support their doctrine, even though it's not true. And that's not the right understanding of that passage. I had a conversation many years ago with a, a leader in the local Roman Catholic Church. And in that conversation, he brought up this, this verse. Um, we were having a regular conversation, and he brought up this verse and was wondering how we Protestants deal with what Paul is saying here. Now, he was trying to convince me that Paul was indicating we have to work. We have work to do as Christians, right? That we must play our part in salvation. That's what he was trying to convince me of. And sadly, in my immaturity and lack of biblical knowledge, I didn't, I didn't give a good biblical response at the time. I, I didn't have a good biblical response at the time because uh, beyond saying that Christ accomplished everything on the cross and that that verse can't mean what he thinks it means, I mentioned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 as proof, right? For, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And that, that's a true refutation of that false gospel. But I felt like I couldn't really answer him and, and really talk about the sufficiency of the work of Christ alone for our salvation. But this was my first real experience with someone trying to prove we have a role to play in our salvation. I knew it wasn't true, but it seemed to me a real hurdle was explaining the verse itself to give him something to think about regarding a better understanding of that verse in its proper context. And to the Roman Catholic, this verse supports the doctrine of purgatory, where a person goes when they die, and, and however long they have to be there to work off the sins uh, that they didn't take care of when they were alive. Right? And not only that, but those who are still alive can supposedly do things to help dead people get out of purgatory sooner. Right? And this is one of the main points that led to the Protestant Reformation um, and what Martin Luther objected to in the form of indulgences. But that's an entirely different study. But we don't need to go into all that. But, but the point is, without a proper biblical hermeneutic, a, a historical, contextual, grammatical interpretation, we can misunderstand Scripture and it happens all the time. Right? And that's why Paul told Timothy to do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, right? Uh, he's talking about this kind of bib biblical study and, and interpretation. Paul, in, the, in that verse, seems to say, I'm doing my part to make salvation a reality because Jesus did his, but what is lacking is my portion. But the problem is that doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture regarding the way salvation is obtained. It just doesn't. Scripture is always the best interpreter of Scripture. So the answer is to look at the rest of Scripture regarding salvation and let the clear passages inform the less clear passages. Like I said earlier, I mentioned in that conversation, I mentioned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, um, that it is, salvation is a gift of God. It is not as a result of works. Right, that's, that's one of the clearest passages regarding how salvation is brought about. It almost can't get any clearer than saying it is not a result of works. Right? And there's, um, if Paul's words in Colossians 1.24 that we're looking at tonight, 
if that meant that we had to do some work toward our salvation. And he says in Ephesians that it is not a result of works, we have a problem, right? He, he would be contradicting himself. Um, and Paul, uh, unless that's not what he means here, and that's the case, right? So we have to, we have to study, we have to understand what he's saying because it doesn't mean what others think it means. Paul never teaches. Scripture never teaches salvation by works. It just doesn't. It clearly says the exact opposite in many places, so he must be talking about something else here. We've already refuted the idea that, that he means his suffering is a work towards salvation, and we did so very easily by using Scripture. You go to Ephesians, you can go to other passages and, and look at what it says. It is not the result of works. Did you have a question? Right, yeah, we can, we can look at what Paul says elsewhere in Romans and talk about our um, giving our bodies as a living sacrifice, okay? And that would fit in with the proper understanding of this, but even that is not about some sort of suffering or offering your body up to obtain salvation, okay? He did, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. He's, he's saying that it is a part of the Christian life, and he is a really good example of suffering as a Christian, right? Um, so what is he talking about? Well, first, what is he not talking about, okay? He's not talking about atonement here in, the, in verse 24. That is the big issue here. The afflictions he's referring to are not those afflictions related to paying the penalty for sin, okay? That's not what he's talking about. The word that Paul uses here for afflictions is a word that has the meaning of severe constriction or a narrowing or a a pressing together, like the idea of taking a pile of grapes and putting all this pressure on it and you're squeezing out uh, what's inside. It's a word that speaks of the type of suffering Christians experience in the afflictions of persecution, but in the New Testament, the word that Paul uses here in the New Testament is never used in reference to the afflictions of Christ. It's never used in regard to atonement. In other words, Paul's use of the word here has nothing to do with the atonement for our sins. That's not what he's talking about. And that also is a refutation of this, the, the Roman Catholic idea of this passage, right? It's, it's not what it's saying. If it's not about the afflictions that bring about atonement, then what? It's about the hatred, the violence directed toward Christ upon the saints. Paul understood this. He understood this for two reasons. He understood the general truth that Christ said his followers would suffer, and he also understood this as a personal promise from Christ for his, Paul's, specific suffering. There's two Reasons why Paul understood this passage, or what he's writing here, really well. He understood the idea of suffering really well, and it was not 
talking about atonement. So first, the suffering of Christians in general, right? Um, John 15, 20 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Okay, this is Jesus talking. And I read to you earlier Paul's words that it has, been, it has been granted to you not only to believe but to suffer. And there are many, many passages of Scripture that tell us and inform us that it is to be expected that the followers of Christ will be persecuted. They will suffer. Paul understood this. They did afflict Christ because of their hatred of Him. But Christ, when Paul's writing this, Christ has ascended into heaven. He's, he's not on the earth at this point, right? If Christ, here's another question, if Christ is not here for men to direct their hatred and violence toward, what's the next best thing? What was that? Those who believe, those who believe in Him, right? His followers, those who follow Christ, those who preach the same message. Look over with me at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And verses 5 through 7. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And Paul writing again there as an apostle about his suffering and the suffering shared by Christians, that suffering, the suffering of Christ that is shared. So I talked about that first reason that Paul really understood the suffering of Christians was that it is a general teaching of Scripture that the life of Christians involves suffering. But there's a second reason why Paul understands this, and that is that, that he understood this because of a personal promise that he received for suffering. Okay, Paul has that, as a Christian himself, he has that general promise that all of us do, um, but Paul also encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and Jesus gave him a special promise of suffering. And when Jesus sent Ananias to remove the scales from Paul's eyes, you know, after he had been blinded, he gave Paul a personal message of suffering. And I want to go and look at that account in Scripture if you want to start turning to Acts 9. We'll look at that. But I have another question first while you're turning to Acts chapter 9. We all understand that Paul used to be Saul, right? Before he was Paul, he was known as Saul. That was his Hebrew name. So years earlier, what was Saul on his way, if you remember, what was Saul on his way to Damascus to do with permission from the high priests? To round up the Christians, to persecute the Christians, right? Yeah, to imprison Christians, to to gather up men and women, to do violence to Christians. Ironic, isn't it, that, that Christ has ascended into heaven already at that point when, when Saul was doing what he was doing, when he was on his way to Damascus, Christ had already ascended into heaven. And Saul was doing 
what we had just talked about that Christians can expect, right? Saul was going about directing his hatred at Christians, directing violence and hatred towards the followers of Christ, towards his representatives. It's, it's interesting, the change that happens in him. And Saul had not yet partaken of suffering, but, but he would. But he, at that point, was perpetrating it, right? He was very well known as a persecutor of the church. So let's look at Acts chapter 9. I guess I should have turned there too. It does help. Okay, Acts chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 19. Okay, so kind of a large section, but, but this is a really important um, time where Christ or Saul encounters the risen Christ. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 9. <clears throat> But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bind them, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And, he, and the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at, Jer at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind, all, uh, to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed. And entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. It's an amazing account of, of the transformation of Saul. What did Jesus say about Saul in verse 15? He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show how, him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Jesus didn't say that he would show him how blessed with riches and comfort he was going to be. And he, he didn't he didn't say he would be happy and healthy. 
Everything would go well. And he also didn't say, by the way, that, um, that he would suffer to complete what was lacking in the atonement. He didn't say that. He commissioned him to carry his name and to suffer for it. This is, this is a special message of suffering made for Saul. So you see, verse 24 is simply a reference to two things. The suffering that all Christians can expect because of Christ and the fact that he knew he was not yet done, talking about Paul, the fact that he knew he was not yet done suffering what Christ has planned for him to suffer. Right? We, we heard it right there in the account of his conversion that Jesus told Ananias to tell Saul very specifically, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It was part of God's plan for Saul to carry this message to very specific people and to suffer in the process. And so it's very clear. We need to be very clear about verse 24. It's not about suffering to help with salvation or to accomplish salvation. You see, this is suffering because of salvation. Because a person is in Christ and living for Christ and sharing the message of Christ, they will always uh, be counter to the world, right? They will always, they won't ever mesh with the message of the world. They shouldn't. The world doesn't like the message that they are sinners. I mean, how many of you before you were saved and someone told you you were a sinner, how many of you thought, yeah, that's great. Thanks for telling me that. You know, you don't want to hear that, right? But when God, when God convicts you of your sin, that changes everything. But the world doesn't like that message. They will attack the messenger. Ultimately, they are attacking Christ through His people. That is why the Scripture says that we share in His sufferings. Remember that Jesus. Remember what Jesus asked Saul. When we, we just read that in, in Acts 9, right? what did he ask him? He was going to persecute Christians. He's on the road to Damascus. Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Right? He's going to Damascus to gather up Christians. They're God's people. They're the followers of Christ. But Jesus looks at it as, you're persecuting me. And he said it to him twice. It's not that Jesus was unconcerned about his followers being persecuted, but the truth is that the attacks on Christians, the persecutions against Christians, are, they're directed at Christ, but Christ is ascended into heaven. We're the next best, next, next best thing. We're here. We're his messengers. We're his people. We carry the same message. The world doesn't like it. Okay, so that's really important for us to understand. Verse 24, um, that it's not about Atonement. It's not talking about something lacking in what Christ did on the cross. That is, that is anti-Scripture to say that and to believe that. Okay, so we, we run from that. We know it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? Then we have to look at, look at it and see what it means. And that's what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about atonement. He's talking about the suffering that the Scripture says in many places is to be expected by Christians. And he's writing about how he's experiencing it. He's going through it. Paul says that his suffering is for the sake of the church. Okay, not, not because he can save them if he suffers, 
but he suffers because he brings them the message of the one who can save them. That's why he suffers. And look at verse 25 as we wrap this up. Paul calls this commission from Jesus a stewardship for the church. Look what he says there in, in 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. He says, of which, there, that's a reference back to what he had just said um, about the church. Of which, meaning the church, it's a reference to the church. He became a minister to the church, which is the body of Christ. And Paul says this was a stewardship given to him from God. That's how he describes it. And it's how he views his ministry. It's a stewardship given to him from God. We read about that in Acts 9. That's what Jesus was doing when he converted Saul. He, he was sending him out. So a question, how did, how did Paul or Saul receive this stewardship? Did, did he sign up? Did he volunteer? Did he, did he seek it out? Was, is that what he was doing? He was going to find Christ so he could be a steward? How did he receive this? What was that? Okay, eventually by obedience. But what preceded that? Blindness from where? From who? Right, from Jesus, right? It did, right? He, he wasn't going looking for this. He wasn't like, oh, I know there's a sign-up sheet over there so I can be part of this group. Jesus sought him out. Jesus transformed his life. Saul didn't have a choice, right? He, he was on his way to do something else. It was the only response to what Jesus did was to fall on his face, to, to, to repent and be saved. That was his response. And when, when people are faced with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, of their sins and their need for a Savior, that's the response. And that's what it was. He didn't go looking for this. Christ sought him out. Right? The Bible says he came to seek and save the lost, and he sure did that with, with Saul. So he used, the word he used there, meaning, uh, the meaning of stewardship here is the idea of one who, who manages the household and possessions of someone else. Okay? Paul knew that he was given the task of, task of caring for, of overseeing, of managing the affairs of the king. Now, everyone in that day understood this concept. He can use that word there, and people understand what he's talking about. They understand uh, that this this person, what, what Paul is describing here, is someone that the, the master trusted to do, to take care of his affairs, to take care of his possessions, right? Um, and this is not to say that Saul or Paul earned this trust, right, by, by doing something. He didn't earn this trust. This was due to the sovereign choice of Jesus himself, and he would take Saul and transform him into his man to do His will. This was a stewardship for the church for a specific purpose. So according to the end of verse 25, what is that purpose? What? Okay, yeah. To preach the Word of God. He says, to make the Word of God fully known. Right? That's the purpose of this stewardship. The way that Paul did this was to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he went 
and in doing so, he shared in the sufferings of Christ. That's what he's writing about here. And as he wrote this letter, he was currently suffering in prison, yet with joy in his heart because of the salvation found in the Lord Jesus Christ, because of the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the truth sets him free from the bondage of fear and worry uh, and all those kinds of things. So in our lives, as we suffer as Christians, um, when suffering comes our way, and it does and it will, um, are we able to suffer the way Paul did? Are we able to suffer with a right view of God, that he's sovereign? Can we, can we be joyful in our suffering? doesn't mean you have to be happy that you have pain, but an attitude of joy knowing that God is doing something with that in your life. That's what Paul understood. He understood that suffering was part of being a Christian. And it's not always because of persecution. We know there is persecution and there will be persecution. But even the suffering that we have just physically, you may have something that even an unbeliever has. What's the difference? How do we suffer as Christians? How do we endure that as Christians? We have a different attitude. Right. That's the first section of this last portion of Colossians 1, Paul's suffering for the church. So next week we'll look at the second section, Paul's mystery message. We'll learn what that is. Okay, so let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you again for tonight, and thank you, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that we can trust your word, that though something may seem confusing or contradictory, Lord, we know that your word does not contradict itself. I pray you give us understanding. Help us to understand the more difficult passage of Scripture with the, with the passages of Scripture that are clear. Help us to understand it through proper study of your word. Lord, that we may not be, have to be ashamed, but rightly handling your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that we play no part in our salvation, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost as, as we were. Thank you, Lord, that you did come, that you called, that you saved, that you keep us. We don't have to fear condemnation any longer. Only because of Christ and his work on the cross, we're so grateful, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.